All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. I love how you guys sing. Like, I sound really like a good singer when I'm sitting in front of you guys. But thank you for the way you sing out. Ray, I'm sure I would have sounded great if I would have been right there, too. I'm sure you sing great, too. Yeah, I know. I know. I got you. So there was no diss. No diss on Ray. Let me just be up front right there on that. So but it's great to be with you guys today. Hey, how about full candor here? How many of you guys have already put away your snow shovels? Like they're gone, right? No more snow coming? All right, so it's looking good. Could be, but um, I'm gonna keep mine around just for a little, little bit longer. So um, we have been preaching from the book of Ephesians this spring, so if you have a Bible, see I'm already calling it spring, I should have said winter. Uh, if you could turn to Ephesians chapter four, um, otherwise the verses will be on the screen, you could follow along with this as well. So, um, I, some of you guys notice, like, when I come up here to speak, I have my iPhone. It's an iPhone 6. Uh, I know I'm several versions behind, but I really like it. And it actually has a clock there. It runs, so I try to stay within time. That's why it's sitting right there. Um, but what's been interesting, if you were born like when I was born, I feel like uh, you are constantly trying to catch up on the latest features with technology, right? And so um, in my early ministry career, I worked with students a lot. Like I still remember the day a student said to me, um, hey, I just Googled it. And I said, you just what? Like what's, what's Google it mean? And so I feel like I had students kind of keeping me up to date. And then right when I stopped working with students, I had my own kids that were teaching me things about my phone. And technology and so and I'm always learning new gadgets that I didn't know my phone could do I love those moments so occasionally where I might know something before they do you know so I'll just really take my time and show them and make sure they know that I know something they don't but it's at least a hundred to one ratio I'm learning stuff about this but but I'm always blown away by how long I would carry around uh, this this phone and I wouldn't even be aware of things it could do for me and then I'd learn that thing and it, and it would be super helpful for me and so so I wonder if uh, chapter four in Ephesians isn't a little bit like that because what we've been seeing in the book of Ephesians in the first three chapters is that the guy who wrote it, Apostle Paul, was writing to some Christians in a town called Ephesus. In the first three chapters, he really wanted them to know that of all the blessings that they had in, because of their relationship with Jesus Christ, in 1, three, chapter 1, verse 3, he just said, he wanted us to know about all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And so you look at all the things that he taught us, things like that we have been adopted by God into his family through Jesus, that we were dead in our sins, and yet God was rich in mercy, full of grace, that Jesus died for us, rescued us from our sins, so we could be in relationship with God and all that flows from that. And as you continued in chapter two, you saw that God has been reconciling us with each other, that God is forming the ultimate team. God is forming a church and that his plan is, through his people, through the church, that throughout the world, God would show how amazing Jesus is, that Jesus would be exalted throughout this world uh, through the church. And that's kind of what we saw in chapters 1 to 3, that this is an amazing privilege, an amazing life that we have uh, because of Jesus and what he's done for us. And then if you were with us a couple weeks ago, chapter 4, verse 1 kind of takes a turn. The first three chapters are your riches in Christ. And now four through six is kind of like, how do we live then in Christ? Like, what, is, what do our lives look like if we totally embrace the riches that are given to us through Christ? In fact, verse one of chapter four said, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Like, make sure your life is really reflecting uh, the riches and the benefits that you have in Christ. So it's a great, the book is, uh, is a rich book and it, it's so profound. And who, who do you, you know, what are our riches in Christ? Who are we in Christ? 
And then how can we live in Christ? And so if you were with us last week, Wade, um, I would look it up online if you missed it. Wade gave us an amazing uh, sermon last week. The passage right before ours talked about an exchange that now because of Christ, we can lay aside our old ways of doing things, our, our old life, and now we can live out of our new identity, out of who Jesus is. We are to put on this new life that's available to us. In fact, Wade's sermon title last week was A New Life. And again, did a great job with the passage. What you're going to see today is the new life on display. That you're going to see that Paul's going to give us in our passage today five specific ways that if we embrace the life that God has given us, things that we could do that maybe we didn't even realize are possible. Kind of like me with my phone, like I didn't know this could happen. Like with Christ in us, there are whole new ways that we can live. And the, the main audience for this passage is really for a church. Like that these are ways that we are called to treat each other, to have this be a place where we can flourish and grow. And also so that this can be a place that when people who don't know Jesus look in and see, like they're just drawn to like, wow, look how those guys live each other, live with each other, treat each other. Look at the lives that are on display. I want that. I want in to that. That's an example of God bringing glory to Jesus through his church. And so that's one application for today. But these truths also will help a marriage, will help um, an engagement, will help friendships, will help community groups. Really, it's just some incredibly practical advice about how to do life together out of our riches that we've received in Christ, all right? So, so please don't, like some people could, could read a passage like today's and see these five commands and say, oh, I got to try harder. I got to be better at that. I got to be better at that. I think Paul would say, no, 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 you're not getting it. Like, like you can't do these things, but now with Christ and what Jesus has given you, man, there's some great things that can come out of your lives and show up in your relationships, all right? So that's, that's kind of the tone of today. So let me pray. It's going to be, it's kind of tricky because it's like we could do five sermons on each of these. So I'm going to do my best to keep it, keep it tight. Um, but you're also going to like say, oh, we could have talked more about that one. We could have talked, we know that, but we're going to try to hit these just to kind of give us an overview of the kind of things that, that Jesus wants to do in our lives, in our relationships, in our church, in our homes. All right. So let me pray and we'll jump into it. So uh, Jesus, thank you so much for the life that you offer us and when we learn you, like the passage last week said, when we learn Christ, our lives change and we're aware of a whole different way that we can do relationships, that we can do life. And so I pray that you would speak clearly to us today and that each one of us, our eyes would open and say, whoa, I, I could use more of that. Jesus, help me be more of that for the sake of my friends and my family and my kids and, and this church. So speak to us today um, powerfully from your word. In your great name we pray. Amen. All right, so Ephesians 4, 25 is where we're going to start. And here's the first of kind of the five ways that we can put this new life on display. Verse, verse 25, chapter 4 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Okay, so in each of these, you're going to see a pattern. You're going to see Paul say, stop doing this, start doing this, and then he's going to give us a motivator, why we should start doing this. So in this one, uh, the, the command is to stop lying to each other. 
And for each of these, I'm going to give us kind of maybe a fictitious character to help us picture this. So for the first one, pretty easy. This is Pinocchio, okay? No Pinocchio. Like, stop lying to each other, okay? So um, let's just talk about that for a little bit. How do we lie to each other? Thinking about maybe a church context, for example. How do we lie to one another? Think about things like this, that maybe there are times where we might embellish or we might exaggerate something that we did well. And we might just kind of, you know, make ourselves look better than maybe it really was, but we'll, we'll exaggerate. That's, that's the way we're not speaking the truth to each other. Or, or how about this one? Sometimes if somebody asks how you're doing and you're really not doing that great, we'll just kind of pretend it's going great. We'll just kind of put a mask on, but we're not going to tell the truth that I'm struggling or I'm really afraid right now or our marriage is in big trouble right now or I'm struggling with one of my kids right now. We'll just kind of, oh yeah, it's great. Everything's good. And so that's maybe another way that we don't speak the truth uh, to each other. Uh, we pretend like we're doing okay. Or what about sometimes where you, you, you're around somebody enough to see something they're doing that somebody's got to say something to them. Like you've, you've got to, maybe even there's a group of you like, who's going to tell them about that? Who's going to, and you're just afraid to, to speak the truth in love when we need to maybe confront each other. Maybe that's a way sometimes we lie. Or maybe there's times we just flat out lie to each other. And so we got to ask, like, so where, where is that coming from? It's, we're supposed to not lie, stop lying, but we're supposed to speak the truth with each other. And so what's the core of lying? Sometimes the core of lying is fear. Like, we're just afraid. Like, I'm afraid you don't think well enough of me right now, so i got to make myself look better. Or I'm afraid that you might not accept me if I really told you what I'm really like or what I'm really struggling with. And so there's a fear that can underlie that. But the motivator here, Paul said, is like, speak the truth to your neighbor because we are all members of one another. Because we're on the same team. And so if I could elaborate on that a little bit. We're on the same page. Like, if we... Uh, again, he's, he's speaking to Christians here. He's speaking to people in a church. He's saying, you got to realize you're all in the same boat. Like you were all sinners. You were all dead in your sins. And the only reason you're on this team now, the only reason you're in this church now uh, is because Jesus was gracious with you. God was merciful. So like there's no one here to really impress. All of our stories are the same. I was a wretched sinner. Uh, I needed Jesus. He rescued me. And now I am growing and becoming more like Christ. As, as a pastor, sometimes one of, one of the privileges I have is like, and I don't know how many times it's happened in my life, but somebody, I might be the first place somebody will tell something, you know, when something isn't going well. And so I can tell you in every one of those scenarios, there's not someone that has laid out something with me. I go, man, you are jacked up. Like, where, where did that come from? Like, get away from me. Like, whenever anybody unpacks something from their life, I may not have the exact story, but there's definitely parts of their story. I'm right there with them. Man, I struggle with that too. Man, I battle with that too. And my view of them doesn't go down. If anything, it goes up. Like, wow, this is, you're being authentic. You're being real. Like, you really want to get after this, don't you? And you took a great first step. And if anything, our relationship gets closer when the truth is is told. And so, um, really, we don't have anything to fear. And if you go back to our identity in Christ, um, he saved us when we were sinners. It's not like God is shocked by the fact that we sin, that we struggle, that we have insecurities, that we're afraid. And so Paul's saying, you're, you're, you're part of one another. Like you're in a whole community that's like that. There's, there's no one in this room that's perfect. There's no one in this room that if you were to go and, and uh, it was appropriate for you to share what's going on in your life, man, I, every person in this room ought to have the same response. Man, I'm with you. Like I battle as well. 
let's go to Jesus together, right? And so I wonder if one of the influences here that keeps us from speaking the truth to each other, if, if it's not the enemy, if it's not Satan, who loves to divide us from God and from each other, he's called the father of lies. And so I wonder if it's him that sometimes plants those seeds of doubt, like you better not share that. Like there's no way they'll forgive you, no way they'll accept you. And the, the charge here is out of your identity in Christ, and speak the truth to each other. You're on, you're on the same team. You're all on the same page. Let's, let's be honest with each other. And let's grow together, all right? So, and so that's the first one there. Again, we could have talked a lot more about that, but there's, there's four more. Again, just really a good overview of what, what can happen in our relationships because of our identity in Christ. So the first one was we can be honest. The second one is in verse 26 and 27, and we can be self-controlled. We can be self-controlled. Verse 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now let me catch something here. Verse 26 says, Be angry. I don't want anybody going, Okay, stop right there. That's my life verse. I'm just going to be angry, right? So I'm going to put that on the dashboard of my car. I'm going to put that in my house. I'm just going to be angry. Sorry, everybody. I'm just obeying the Bible today. I'm just going to be angry. I'm just going to, you know, let it, let it go and let it fly. So... That's, that's, don't stop. Let's read the whole, whole context here, okay? So, so in, in this one, we're going to see uh, do, not, do not have sinful anger. Have self-controlled anger. Um, and um, the reason is uh, you want to deal with it quickly because you don't want to give the enemy an opportunity. That's the motivator. Uh, the fictitious character here would be the rage monster, right? From, um, from Dude Perfect, like the guy that something triggers him and then it's over. Like he's just mad and it's, things are getting broken and it's, it's, it's done, right? So, so, so let's break this down. Um, what's interesting about this verse is sometimes people struggle with the be angry. Like sometimes people say, well, isn't anger in itself a sin? Like isn't it just if you get angry, that's wrong? And so I would say it's not the case because uh, there were times where Jesus got angry. We know that Jesus didn't sin, right? And so if you looked at the times that Jesus got angry, there was actually a time once where, and he just didn't get like disturbed or have to use a sharp word. Like one time he got so angry at the point where he made a whip and he drove people out of the temple. Like that's kind of some sustained anger there and that's some very demonstrative anger. But you look in that situation, in the times where Jesus got angry, it was that injustice. It was when, in that particular situation, people were profiting off of uh, inhibiting people being able to come and just worship God. People were getting in the way of just authentic worship of his Father, and that was absolutely wrong. And so Jesus moved in righteous anger. In fact, I would say that if you're a follower of Jesus, and you walk through our world today, and things don't, some things don't make you angry, there's something wrong. When you look at the injustices and you look at the suffering, in fact, God has used righteous anger in his people over the centuries to go and bring about change, to bring about social change, to bring about abolition of slavery, for example. And so, and so God, God can use righteous anger in his people. But the Bible's also loaded with some warnings for us. Uh, anger is a dangerous emotion. Like, I trust anger in Jesus' hands, but I don't trust it in mine. So that's why you want to deal with it quickly. You want to deal with it carefully. That's the whole deal about the sun not going down on my anger, not letting it linger in us. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A quick-tempered man does foolish things. Okay, just think of the dumb things we have said or done just because we were mad, right? There's so lots of warnings there. James 1 says, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, 
because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. In fact, what we're called to be is to be slow to anger. When we're uh, walking in Christ, we're reflecting God's character to the world, and, and God is called slow to anger as well. And so, but that is not our typical response. Like when we get mad, we're mad. It's on, right? And another mistake we make is a lot of times we will say, something made me mad. Like we'll point to circumstances around us. Like when he said that, it made me mad. Or when this happened, when my car broke down, it made me mad. Like, so we'll point to things out there when actually, um, what, is a, what is a healthy investigation for us is to look at what is it that triggers our anger. Like our anger is actually more of a heart issue than an out there issue, especially unrighteous anger. And the best way to understand our anger is to look at our own hearts. And when we get angry, usually what that means, what's triggering that is that my desires or my demands are not being met. Usually my desires are things like I want to be in control. I want to be comfortable. I want to be respected. And so when you look at the things, it's really a kind of a, a good way to analyze our lives. Like just think back at the last week and when did you get mad and what, what was it that made you mad? And then what was it maybe you were trying to defend or protect uh, through your anger? Like you were rising up, you were getting defensive, you were trying to lash back at something. What, what did you feel like was being attacked? It's usually a vulnerable person or somebody who's been wounded that will often battle uh, anger. And again, this is a, we could do sermons, we could do a whole series on anger. Um, but, but one thing I just want us to, to be reminded of here is, is that we can fight anger at the heart level because of Jesus and what he has done for us. And a great example of this for us is the guy who wrote this letter, the guy who wrote Ephesians. Remember, he's writing from prison. He's not writing from Cancun on spring break. Like, he's, he is suffering, right? And so it's interesting, he wrote this letter, but he also wrote one that we studied last year, the book of Philippians. And for, for some reason, in the book of Philippians, he kind of lets us into his heart a little bit more and explains uh, how he can still have joy and perspective, even though his life is really bad in the moment, right? Even though he's having hardship, he's being mistreated, um, he's being persecuted. He's, he said things like, like this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Like, again, these weren't just nice little sayings he was coming up with while he was having a tantrum in his jail cell. Like, this is the way this guy lived. Uh, Philippians 4, 5 says, let your gentleness be evident to everybody around you because the Lord is near. And he said things like this, don't be anxious, but in everything with prayer, petition, uh, supplication, and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I, in fact, I would read, just circle Philippians 4 and read that sometime. As far as at the heart level, how can you uh, defend yourself from, from anger, from unhealthy anger? And, uh, and, and Paul's a great example for that. Out of his relationship with Christ, uh, he was able to, to be secure, to have uh, hope in any hardship, any situation that he faced. And so, again, we could spend a ton more, but in a hostile world like we're in today, when, when a hostile world can look and see a group of people, that yeah, there's times where you see them rise up, and while I can see why they were getting angry, that was for a just cause. They were defending that cause or those people. But in general, you don't see these people rising up and demanding stuff for themselves. 
uh, or, or kind of fighting with each other for their rights to be met. You see a people that are self-controlled and who rise up on behalf of others. So like when a world today looks and sees that, you know, that that's powerful. Where are, you guys, where are you guys getting that? So we have speaking the truth. We have being self-controlled. The third, again, sorry, we could go long on each of these, but the third display of a new life is in verse 28, being hardworking and generous, okay? Verse 28 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, being, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So if the stop here is stop stealing, our cartoon character here would be Swiper. Sorry, Dora fans. If you're a Dora fan, I, I really apologize. But there's Swiper, known for stealing stuff, right? So don't, don't steal, um, but instead, the, the call, the positive call, is to work hard. In fact, that, the Greek word there really did mean strenuous labor. Like, put yourself into your work with your whole heart. Work hard. And the reason why is that you'll have something to share. You'll have something to contribute to people who are in need. And so, uh, maybe a good question to ask here is the question, are you a taker or are you a giver? And you can put that in any context, in, in your home, in your relationship with your roommate, in your friend group, uh, in your marriage, and then in this church. Would you say you are a giver or are you a taker? And so uh, we live in a world where we tend to be takers and maybe our natural response uh, before Jesus is to be takers. But yet what we have learned in Christ is that we can be a giving people because we have a God who has given to us. We have a generous God who moved toward us in our moment of big need, right? We were dead in our sins. We had no hope. And God moved toward us and gave us his greatest gift, his son, Jesus Christ, who did the heavy lifting of dying for us on the cross, rose again from the dead. Like he did the work for us so that through Jesus now we receive the blessings of God's generosity. We become sons and daughters of God. God did the work, right? And so the way you reflect that in the office tomorrow, in your school, um, again, in your home, that you're not a taker. You're not going to sit back and let others do all the serving, let others do all the giving, but you're, you're going to be a giver. You're going to reflect the fact that you know and you are in a relationship with a very giving God who did the heavy work for us. We saw this verse a couple weeks ago, Ephesians 2.10. Part of the gift God has given us is to do good works. He said, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works uh, that God has already prepared in advance that we should do. So working is part of the gift that God has given us to, to work hard. Again, uh, I think this principle elevates uh, any job that you guys are stepping into. I mean, obviously within ethical, moral boundaries, but, but whatever it is you're gonna do tomorrow, it's not like only pastors and missionaries have you know, uh, sacred callings. Like, all of our work is sacred. When you go there and you work hard and you put on display the fact that you know a God who worked for you and who's generous with you and that you're a giver and not a taker, that's a powerful statement for the gospel. In fact, there was, I don't know why they had to do research on this, but they did research on companies that had more of a culture of giving than taking. And it's a no-brainer, but, but the, culture, the company cultures that had more of the giving going on in every metric uh, you could imagine, those companies succeeded greater, whether it be customer satisfaction, employee retainment, job satisfaction. When that culture was defined more by giving than taking, 
that's what you saw. And so this is exactly what God is calling us toward as the church, that we would be known as a giving community, not a taking community. And what you see also throughout the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus, uh, is that this isn't just something God says, well, I suffered for you, now you gotta go suffer. You gotta go, I was a giver for you, not, actually this is the most fulfilling life that you can live. First Timothy 6 calls it um, to take hold of the life that is truly life. Like that when we are a generous people and we're a giving people, that's where life is really found. And so God's not calling you to something that's gonna be drudgery. God is calling you to something that'll be incredibly fulfilling and will put the gospel on clear display. And so um, that's, that's kind of the, the heartbeat of Parkview, is that we're a church of three campuses, that every time you come here, that means there have been a lot of people behind the scenes that have served you, uh, that have gone before us to prepare for us to worship together. Like we're a church that really relies on people being givers and not takers, right? And so that's just something to think about. I think the way you get more out of church is when you give, when you serve, when you jump in and you get to know folks and, and, and team up together and use your gifts. Uh, those are things that, that are so fulfilling for us. So, so that's another evidence, a display of the new life, is it will be hardworking and generous, okay? Two more, hang with me. The fourth one is in verse 29 and 30, all right? And, and uh, this one is to be encouraging, particularly with our speech, to be encouraging, all right? So verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come from your mouths, but only such is good for the building up uh, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So stop using corrupting language. My character I thought of there was Lucy. Man, if you ever watched the Peanuts growing up, like, man, those guys were harsh with each other, right? Blockhead, like that's what she called Charlie Brown, blockhead. So I don't know, when I grew up, and I'm dating myself, but when I grew up as a kid, like, yeah, we watched Charlie Brown. But I remember when I had kids, we started showing them Charlie Brown. It's like, whoa, those guys were mean to each other. Like, no, don't call your sister blockhead. Like, don't call, like, so, but, but no, Lucy comes to mind as a non-encouraging person, right? So, um, so we're called not to be that way. In fact, it's interesting that word corrupting, like no corrupting talk, uh, it really was a, was a word uh, that, that referred to just a very foul language. In fact, at times, one of the ways it was applied was uh, for rotting fish. Like it's just corrupting meant just foul and disgusting. And I, I remind me of a story where we uh, were taking um, some students on, the f on our first inner city Chicago trip. This was a lot of years ago. And we were the first group to use a camp facility that spring. Like, so it had been closed all winter. And we had this little cabin that had its own kitchen. We were doing our own, our own cooking. And so there were about 20 of us moving in there. And I was the first one that stepped into the kitchen and I just popped open the freezer door uh, so we could start putting things in there. And guys, I have never in such a short moment been completely overwhelmed with an absolutely horrible smell. Like instantly tears and gagging. And what was profound, it wasn't just me right there. Like there was people around me that were starting to do the same thing right away. Man, we just shut that quick. But it just, the whole cabin was so bad, uh, we couldn't stay there. We had to go somewhere else. And what had happened is that one of the workers had been fishing like the fall before and had stuck fish in the freezer and didn't remember that they were there. And probably another worker just, hey, it's winter, nobody's in the cabin, unplugged the freezer. And so for about 
about four months, those fish just sat in an airtight freezer and just honestly, just that quick open it up, gag, tears in your eyes, shut the door. It, the, we couldn't stay there. Like we had, had to leave. That's not how horrible that was. So, so that's kind of the picture there, though. It's like sometimes our speech can be like that. I mean, let me just go on a quick tangent here, too. Did you hear McDonald's has candles now? Like to commemorate, I would never even think of this, but to commemorate the quarter pounder, they have these candles now that represent the various smells of a, of a quarter pounder. So you can have a pickle candle, you can have an onion candle. I mean, that just sounds disgusting to me. I think usually if you were to eat a quarter pounder in your office and then you had somebody coming in, wouldn't you light another candle to get the quarter pounder smell out of your office? So like, why would you burn an onion candle? Because you're just going to have to burn another candle to get, I don't know, that's... That's not here or there. It's just weird to me. Why would you do that? So, but it's a, it's a very powerful imagery that, that our words can be so polluting, so corrupting, so harsh on people. And um, I, it's so sad when we do that. In fact, I, I, I can imagine if you, I took this the positive way. You also take this the negative way. Like if you just thought through your life, like what are some of the most painful things people have said to you? I mean, it, we, we could probably remember those, you know? Um, our words can be so destructive. And in fact, the book of James has a whole chapter on our tongue. James chapter three, uh, it says things like, our tongues are so small, but they can do such great damage. Like a spark can burn down a whole forest. Uh, the bio, James three calls our tongues a restless evil. I learned this week that our tongues have eight muscles and those muscles never get tired. Like, and I just thought of that. I've never had a muscle cramp in my tongue, right? So I know some people that probably should, but I guess it doesn't happen, right? So, so but our tongues can just do incredible damage. And um, people have hurt you with, your, with their tongues. You have probably hurt others. And if I could take us even deeper into the conviction bunker for a minute, I, especially dads in this room, there's something especially uh, either super positive or super crushing about words from a dad. Um, and I just can't, can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who have said, I wish I could have just heard my dad say this. Or it hurt me so much when my dad said that. Our words are powerful with everybody, but in dad world, let's, let's especially dial in here, right? So, so don't speak that way, but instead... Uh, build each other up. Speak words that are encouraging. Literally, that was a construction term. It meant to, to actually like construct and build something off a of foundation. Like we have that capability with our tongues uh, to destroy each other, but also to build each other up and to speak affirming words, uh, encouraging words. And again, I, I did that uh, this week and just thought through what have been some of the most meaningful words spoken to me or spoken over me throughout my life and just how even life-shaping or life-directing our words can be uh, with each other. And so maybe a good question to ask yourself is like, what is the aroma of your speech? Like when you leave the room, are people lighting candles? Because uh, you've been there, right? Like, man, let's get that out of here. And even things like um, complaining and whining or what's the general tone of our of our speech, and here's where identity in Christ comes in. Jesus said that um, if you wanna know what's going on in your heart, just listen to how you're talking. Listen to your speech. It's like our tongues are like a dipstick. Like you wanna see how your engine's doing? You look at the dipstick. You wanna see how your heart's doing? You just listen to your talk. Listen to your speech. 
And it's our speech lining up with our identity that we are forgiven, we are loved. You know, we have a God who's providing everything we need. Um, Our our tongues speaking from a place uh, of hurt or of anger, um, of fear, of worry. You know, as in our identity with Christ, uh, there ought to be a profound difference in how we use our words. Encouraging words doesn't mean you can only say nice things. Like sometimes it builds somebody up to hear the truth, too, to speak the truth and love to them. If there's something that I need to be confronted on, you need to tell me that. That's a loving thing to do. But, but one of the characteristics of living the new life is that our words will build each other up. And the last one, again, we could speak forever on each of these. They're full sermons, but we've got to keep it moving. The last one is to be compassionate and forgiving. Compassionate and forgiving. Verse 31 uh, uh, says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So there's a whole list of things there. My cartoon character there is Yosemite Sam. Man, that guy was constantly mad, bitter at whoever it was, all right? So um, those five words that got all strung together really kind of build on each other, kind of, and they magnify, right? The first word, bitterness, is where it starts. It's when you replay a resentment over and over again, something somebody did to you, they didn't do for you, and it hurts you or they robbed you in some way. That's a bitterness that can just, you replay it and replay it. And then each of these kind of cascade up. The next one, those next two words kind of go together, rage and anger, that, that as you stew on bitterness, it becomes that rage and anger for you. And then the next two are more external. Clamor and slander means now you're talking about them. You're running them down. You're gossiping about them. You're cutting them down. And that last one, that word malice, is the most intense. That's where you're even speaking threats or acting out on threats. And so you see this whole explosion that comes uh, when we allow bitterness to take root in our lives. And the way you remedy that comes out of verse 32, where he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. What's really interesting, and maybe it doesn't surprise us when you see it's in Ephesians, but there were two different words that Paul could have used for forgiveness, and one that was more commonly used, he didn't. He used one that had at its root uh, the word, the noun, grace, that, that it was emphasizing that an act of forgiveness is an expression of grace, that when you forgive somebody, you don't technically have to. It means you've been offended, but when you offer forgiveness, you are being gracious to that person who offended you. And I think it's to the point that every time we offer forgiveness to someone, what we're doing is reminding ourselves of how much we have been forgiven by Christ. And every time we offer forgiveness, we are putting on display for that person and the person around us of what forgiveness really looks like, what the ultimate forgiveness was what Jesus has done for us. And so, um, and if you look at the scope of this planet and everybody that ever walked on it, there's only one person that really had the right to be bitter, and that was Jesus. I mean, think about it. He created us, and we denied him. He came to this earth. He suffered. He died for us. He took punishment that we deserved. He was taunted. He was abandoned. He was abused. He was beaten for a bunch of people who would take him lightly, who would ignore him, some days maybe follow him, some days not. And if anybody could have been better, it would have been Jesus. But how did he respond to us? Remember when he was hanging on the cross and he said in his prayer to his father, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Like the whole reason we're even in a relationship with God is because he's gracious with us and he has forgiven us. 
And so I know there's times where we're really challenged to forgive, like how could I forgive them? I think what this verse is calling us to do is to keep looking, looking up. Well, how much have you been forgiven? Like how, how, how deep has your debt been to God and yet he forgave you in Christ? So when God calls us and commands us to forgive, I think there's two reasons for it. Number one, it's to kind of help our own hearts. Like the more we hold on to bitterness and anger, that's like drinking poison. You know, the other person's offense is lingering and even expanding because we're letting bitterness rob our joy. So when God says forgive, he's saying for your own good, forgive. Don't hang on to bitterness. But he's also commanding us to forgive because again, it is an amazing reflection of how we have been forgiven by Jesus on the cross. And so here's the results, you guys. If you take those five displays of the new life, Let's, let's talk about for us. Number one, we grow stronger. Like when we get to be in an environment like that where there's encouraging words spoken, where people are real, where we can be ourselves, where we can tell the truth about how we're doing or not, um, where we are forgiven when we mess up or there's compassion shown us, man, sign me up for that, right? Is there a better environment for us to grow and become more and more like Christ than when you are surrounded by a whole team of people that are doing these things for each other? And that is, that's where we grow, right? So, so for us, the result is we grow stronger. But the other result is, like I said, kind of I think one of the themes of the whole book of Ephesians is that God wants to bless us as his church so that through us, the world will see how awesome Jesus is. And so you talk about a, a world today uh, that is living in a very hostile place that sees calm, a place that's very selfish and everybody's standing up for themselves. They see people living as givers, not takers. Uh, you see people in a cancel culture where you screw up, you're out, and they show people who are compassionate and forgiving and accepting of each other, then you have a whole world who's going to want to step into that. I, there's a great thing I've heard before that if you have what everybody else wants, you don't have to shove it on them. They'll steal it from you. And so it's the same thing. We put the life of Jesus on display. Like People are going to be banging down the doors to get in to your community group, into this church, into your family, like where are you guys getting that? It's gonna be a great chance for us to point to Jesus. I just wanna wrap up with this. There was something that happened back in November that made a clear statement to our country today about the power of the gospel. So a quick set it up. Um, there was an unfortunate shooting uh, of a police, a police officer shot an innocent person. And remember the story, it was uh, Amber Geiger was um, coming off a work shift. She thought she was on her floor of the apartment building, but she was actually a floor either above or below. And she went into what would have been her apartment on the right floor. And there was um, a dark-skinned man in her apartment and just kind of instinctively uh, she shot him. And he was from St. Lucia. And uh, of course, it just, it was a horrible, horrible on all angles. Um, but then in our, our day too, it started turning into a racial narrative. It started like just the hostility, the anger, everything was just building out of this. And during the trial, the brother of the murdered man made an amazing statement. And I'm, I've got the video here for you to see the power of the gospel put on display in a world like ours today. Let's watch, watch this together. A powerful scene in a Texas courtroom. A man whose brother was shot to death by a Dallas police officer forgiving his brother's killer and embracing her. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. 
And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. That's a super powerful picture of the gospel. And we have a, a super amazing privilege as the people of God um, to take the life that Jesus has given us and to put it on display in the world by how we treat each other and by how we treat the people in the world. So what I'd like to do is this to kind of wrap up our time. There's going to be a slide that's going to go up and it's going to kind of review the five uh, areas of life that Paul is calling us up to, saying, do you know in Christ you could live this way? And why don't you ask God, just in this moment between you and God, like, which of those five in particular does God want you to know? Hey, I want to meet you where you are right now in that, but I want to help you grow, okay? Let's get to work on one of these. Again, God's doing the work, but you're going with them there, okay? So pick one of those five and... Uh, and just talk to God about that. Talk to God about that area, all right? So I'll give you a minute or two to do that, then I'll close this in prayer, and that'll be the end of our service. But just take a couple minutes and look at that list.